following us on social media this week. I hope you're not too disappointed that Chris Rock isn't here with us. He had to cancel last minute, but Pastor Brian asked me to fill in, so you got me this morning. Uh, in all seriousness, it's really good to be here. Um, one of the privileges of my job it, working with students on campus is that I get to be, I have the flexibility to be in other churches periodically to fill pulpits. Last two weeks I've been in Clay Center and then in Lawrence last week and bring greetings from believers in those places. It's a privilege to do that and I, it's something I enjoy about my job, but I'm always grateful to be back home and so it's good to be with you this morning. Um, I also probably should preface, um, if you're looking for deep meaning in my sermon title this morning, you can stop now. Um, it was my attempt at a dad joke that may or may not come to fruition later this morning, so I'll let you have fun with that this morning as well. It's our privilege, though, now to turn together to John chapter 1. We're going to consider the verse, first 18 verses of John chapter 1. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles, if you will, and keep it open there. Some years ago, uh, French philosopher Chantal Del Sol wrote these words. One of the particularities of our time consists of the fear of truth. We hold dearly to the good, but we are suspicious of truth. We refuse to even ask ourselves the question, what is true, so that the only question that remains for us to ask is, how can we live well? Somewhere along the way, we've divorced the idea that, that truth has anything to do with living a good life and living well. What's fast, one of the fascinating things about John's gospel, his account of Jesus' life on earth and his life and ministry, is that he actually weds those two things throughout his work, the idea of truth and living well. In fact, near the end of his book, he writes these words, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Do you hear that? He's wedding the idea of truth, what we believe, what we believe in particular about Jesus, that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by that truth, by that believing, we might have life in his name. When John uses that word life, it's a loaded word for him because it implies not simply existence, but a thoroughly good life, a life well lived, knowing God and loving God and loving neighbor. That's the trajectory of John's gospel, so I want to keep that in mind as we open open our Bibles to, to John chapter 1, and I read these words. Would you hear now the word of God from John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He, was, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But... To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. 
For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through, Je- through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Would you bow with me as we pray? Father in heaven, we approach this daunting text this morning. It's daunting because of the scope of which you consider where you begin these words long before creation even. But Father, as we approach your, your word once again this morning, we ask that you would send out your light and your truth, that they would lead us and take us to the place where you dwell, that we might behold you, that we might see you, that we might know you, and in knowing you that we might be changed. This is our prayer, this is our plea this morning. Give us understanding, we ask, through the strong name of Jesus and by the work of his spirit. Amen. In my second favorite chapter of C.S. Lewis's uh, classic work, Mere Christianity, he writes these words about the human condition. He says, now what was the sort of hole that man had gotten himself into? He had tried to set up on his own, to behave as if he belonged to himself. In other words, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. It means unlearning all the self-conceit and self-will that we have been training ourselves into for thousands of years. It means killing part of yourself, undergoing a kind of death. Do you hear truth in Lewis's words? That we are not simply imperfect creatures that need improvement. That the things that we feel about this world, our experience in this life, is not simply that we're, we're almost there but not quite, just falling short, just falling a little bit short. Lewis's point is this, the human condition is that we are rebellious, that we stand against our maker and and do what we can to run and hide from him as if that were even possible. Now what's interesting about this text before us is that in the very middle of it, we, we see some hint of this, but not it exactly. If you look with me back at verse 10 and 11, you'll see some hints of something. In the midst of describing the eternity of Jesus, and his existence and his entering into this world. If you look at verse 10, it says this at the end, yet the world did not know him. And then in verse 11, he says, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Now, on face value, it may sound like something like, well, we just didn't recognize who he was. We just got it a little bit off. But if you're familiar with John's gospel, you know that John sees the human condition as far more than that. And then in those hints, what we're really hearing is, is a sense of the rebellion that Lewis described, that we don't know him because we choose not to know him, that we don't receive him because we choose not to receive him. In fact, in John chapter 3, verse 19, he writes this, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their own works were evil. That's the rebellion that describes the human condition. But humanly speaking, if that's our starting place, What do we have left? If our starting point is to run away from God, to turn our backs on him and run and hide, as it were, what what, what do we have left? Where I want to point us this morning is that God himself is what we have left. If the trajectory of John's gospel, even the trajectory of this first chapter, is that by knowing that, believing that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and that by believing in him we might have life in his name, 
There is indeed hope. And I want you to see that that's the trajectory of these first 18 verses. Now, as we walk through this passage this morning, we begin at the beginning, of course, and appropriately, John begins at the very beginning. He says this, in the beginning was the word. Now, if, if you know your Bibles, this may sound familiar, at least a, a shade familiar, Genesis chapter 1, 1, the very first words of the scriptures themselves. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, before he mentions God, though, he uses this word, word, the Greek word there is logos. Now, he uses this to talk about what was there at the beginning. He says this, this logos, this thing, whatever it is, was with God. It's a loaded term. Contemporaries of John would have, might have thought, might have understood him to be saying something like this. He's describing the thought or reason, this abstract idea that sort of holds the universe together. It was beginning to be a popular idea that actually grew, that there was some sort of amorphous thing called reason or idea that held the universe together was the foundation of all that was. But in fact, John, as a, as a good Jewish man, would have, known, would have been referring to something more specific than that. You see, throughout the Old Testament, even in the early verses of Genesis, we hear God speaking. You see, the logos in, in, in plain English would mean something like this, that which is said or spoken. It literally translates into the word, word. What's happening here is, is John, John would have been, would, would, would know that this word carried weight for God's people. Because when God spoke, things happen. John, Genesis 1-3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. To number the prophets speaking on God's behalf to God's people, we hear, we hear these words, the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. The word is God speaking, his, his act, enacting his will and his power into his creation. But look again with me at those early verses. In fact, look at, look at the first two verses in particular. Notice what we, what we see that John's saying there. Again, let's look at it again. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. John is saying something vital here. The word there that's translated with in Greek is not the typical word for with. It's actually a word that's often, that often communicates the idea of to or toward. The word was toward God. Now what we know from studying the language and seeing this in other places in the, in the scriptures, what that references is, it references a relationship, it references a connection. That the word was acting personally with God. It's like we might say to our significant other, she's with me, or he's with me, or I'm with her. There's a relationship that's, that's spoken of there. And the fact that he takes two verses to say nothing but that should, stand, should catch our attention. It sounds redundant to our ears. But the point is this. The word, the logos, was always, has always existed with God. Indeed, the logos was God. Not as an abstract idea or a thought or a thing, but as a person relating to God himself. The Father and the Son exist eternally is the implication here relating to one another. And then we look at verses three through five. Know what he, notice what he adds to this as we look at verse, begin to look at verse three. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. He's hearkening back to that creative moment. After taking the first two verses to describe what was happening before creation began to happen, here John writes, through this word, present with God, creation was happening. 
In fact, in verses four and five, he adds the words light and life that echo the, the, the language of Genesis. As I said, Genesis 1, 3, the first thing that God creates, his first ordering principle of the world that he has made is let there be light. And then in chapter two, as we, hear, we see God specifically crafting the man and then the woman, we read that God breathed the breath of life into the man and he became a living being. Light and life. John is pointing backwards. But like a good writer, he's also helping his readers anticipate that these words will have significance later in his gospel. That light will not only mean clarity and understanding, but it will have a moral implication with it as well, as will, as will darkness. And that life, as we said, life speaks to an abundant life, something living in the presence of God, knowing him as we were made to know him. The word and God were relating together eternally, existing together, and they were creating all things. In fact, there's no room left for anything in this that we could ever imagine that wasn't created by God through the word. They were there existing eternally together. This has implications for us. I have a memory, I've told some of my students this, but I have a memory from my freshman year of college, which was 1993, believe it or not. It still freaks me out that, I, that that's when I was a freshman in college. I got a call because in 1993 we didn't know what texting was and we barely had email, I think, though I do remember having email at that point in time. But I got a call from a friend, a new friend, um, saying that he and somebody else were meeting at the student union to grab some dinner before heading to a friend's apartment to watch the Ohio State football game that year. It was Eddie George's senior year, if I remember correctly. That stands out to me as well for some reason, that detail. But anyway, regardless, um, they were meeting for dinner at the Union and they said, John, would you want to come along with us? Now these are students that I just, I just barely gotten to know. I was, imp- I was surprised that they even knew who I was. Um, and in fact, you know, they've gone on to, to be rather successful. One's a professor of mathematics and the other is a, a, has traveled the world singing opera music. But I remember walking to the, to the Union that night for, the, for dinner and sitting down with them and just feeling naturally like brought into their conversation. They, I was a freshman, I didn't know anything, and I probably thought I knew far more than I did. But they, they brought me into their relationship, their friendship. They didn't need me there. They didn't need me there. They didn't need me to be a part of what they were doing. But they invited me into, this, into, into that relationship with them. And that had, obviously, it had a deep impact on me because it, it was, they were part of the ministry that I ended up being a part of, which God used to, to significantly lead me to himself and in other ways change my life. But it's that moment of entering into a relationship where you're not needed, but you're wanted, where you're invited into something. That can be deeply profound. And that's, that's what I want us to think about, what's, what's happening here. Because the paradox of sorts here is that God is fully satisfied in himself, which is exactly what we need him to be. The, the word, is, as is revealed later in verses 14 and following, the, the word here is, is John's initial name for Jesus, to speak of who Jesus is and how he was at work from the beginning, to let us know in no uncertain terms that Jesus has always existed. The Son and the Father had this perfect relationship. There were no insecurities. There was no sense of, what's his mood going to be today? Which, which father am I going to get today? There was no, or which son am I going to get today for that matter? There's no sense of that whatsoever. It was perfect, they were perfectly in relationship, fully satisfied, relating to one another, and yet they chose to create. That out of sheer delight and goodness, they didn't need to create what they made, they didn't need to create because they were lonely, needy, or insecure, they simply chose to create everything that was, and to send it light, and to send it life, to bring order to this creation, 
And what we read in the, in the early chapter, chapters of Genesis, that by the end of the creation account, we, we see God stepping back from everything that he had made and saying, behold, it was very good. It's the delight of the Father and the Son in what they've made. Is that, how, is that the starting point for how you see God? Do you see God that way, delighting in, what you, in who you are and what you've made and what he's made in you? That you have capacity that far exceeds other creatures in this world. As interesting as walking, you know, seeing animals at the zoo are or learning about new kinds of creatures in the depths of the ocean that we just, we're, seem to be learning about regularly. In spite of the, the wonder at those things, at the pinnacle of his creation, God made man and woman and he said, very good. That his starting point with his creation is not disappointment or disapproval. His starting point with his creation is delight. And it flows out of his, the, the relationship that the Father and the Son have with one another. That, that we are the experience of the outpouring of that relationship. Is that how you see God? Notice where John takes us. As we, as we acknowledged earlier, man is, mankind did not live in that fully state, full state of being very good for long. In fact, what we read in the early chapters of Genesis is that man indeed rejected the authority of God, rejected his very word, and ran and hid. And yet as we keep reading through John 1, what we find is we see the Father and the Son intentionally pursuing humanity to save. Notice what, what feels like an abrupt shift in verse 6. There we read, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Otherwise, we know him colloquially as John the Baptist or John the Baptizer from the other gospel accounts that we have. It's fast-forwarding from eternity to get to the specific matter at hand, the life and the work of Jesus. It's indeed what John set out to do. And so as he begins to describe the work and ministry of Jesus, he starts where the other writers were Matthew, Mark, and Luke all start as well by describing John the Baptist, the one who was preparing the way for Jesus to come. And what does he tell us there? He says his name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. John had one job, to prepare people for Jesus. Now, John, doesn't, John the writer here doesn't give us a whole lot more detail other than that, and that should stand out to us. John was sent to God, and his role was to testify to the light coming into the world, to say, get ready, because he's coming. His work was preparing. He wasn't preaching himself, as easy as that could have been, but only preaching Jesus. John was preaching Jesus, preparing the people for the, for the light to come. And then we get into verse 9 and we see, the, we see these words. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So we've said both verses 10 and 11 mention that something is wrong but not without John hearkening back to the moment of creation, to say God created all this. Remember that the one entering the world is the one who made the world. Even as the light was coming into the world, the world was not ready for him. And yet, hope remains. Even to the point of, of God not only preparing, preparing through, through John himself, but we see as we keep reading in verses 12 and 13 that, there's still, that hope remains. That to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood and not of the will of man, not of the will of flesh nor the will of man, but of God. You see, as, as rebellious as humanity is, John hints at something else here, that there are some who believe. 
In fact, the way he says it, he doesn't say it, he doesn't say it as if it's a small number. He says, to all who did receive, as many as believed would be given the right to become children of God. Not, yeah, we'll let you in, but you have a right through faith to be called a child of God, to be accepted into God's family, to be received into the family of God by nothing more than belief. It's not something you accomplish. It's not something you have to be good enough to achieve or earn your way into. It is simply receiving the word about Jesus, that he is indeed the Son of God, that we might be called God's children, accepted into his family. The Father and the Son are saving intentionally here, preparing the way and receiving all who would receive the Son as he is. I once performed a wedding on top of the world. It was an interesting experience. You remember that, Pastor Brian? You see, we met the bride and the groom a few minutes before the wedding. Pastor Brian and my wife were the witnesses because it was the summer and very few of us were around. Lucy, my daughter, who was at most 12 at the time, was the wedding photographer. And as I said, we, we met the, this was, let's just call it this, this was the opposite of a highly planned, prepared event. This was the very opposite of that. The bride showed up with her dress and the, and the groom showed up dressed in his tux. And we met them in our living room. And we proceeded, you know, I headed out with Lucy and Pastor Brian out early to, to get, the, get the location scouted out and set up. And my wife brought the bride in the van and she got out of the van and the aisle was the, 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 the trail down the top of the hill to the, to the peak there. And we had a little wedding. Like I said, it was the opposite of a prepared event. Some of you might, be, might wish you could have done that in, in actuality. But it's what it was. But the reality is, it wasn't as unprepared as I'm making it out to be. I mean, it was that unprepared. That's literally what happened. But there was more to it than that. You see, the groom was finishing up his service at Fort Riley and was medically discharged. And he and his bride-to-be had met while, while serving in the army together and were eager to get married and felt like, by all circumstances, they should go ahead and get married. And the bride was a member of the church that I grew up in, actually. I, I'd never met her before, but she knew my parents, and so that this was all given the okay by their pastor. A lot of preparation actually went into this far more than I realized. And even in that moment of feeling like, what's happening here? You know, the bride showed up and sort of said, okay, this is my plan. Here's what we're going to do. And I said, well, we, we got this figured out. It's okay. It was a rather amusing time. It was a really sweet time. They're married now and still have, and have a bunch of kids, actually. We see them every few years when they drive through town. But in that moment of realizing that even the preparation was even happening when I wasn't thinking it was happening, it echoes what we see happening here in John 1, the preparing work and the saving work that the Father and the Son were at work doing long before we knew what was happening. You see, salvation of God's people is not an afterthought. This idea of, of receiving the Son of God by faith was not plan B as if as if it's a gruff retort of a parent who's, who's tried everything and says, fine, I'll help you this way and we'll do it your way and be done with it. You see, living, for, living on these side of these events, the preparing for us may simply amount to being pointed to Jesus. There may be people in your lives whom God is preparing to meet Jesus. John's work was simply not, was not about himself, it simply pointed people to Jesus. And I wonder if we're overcomplicating leading others to Jesus. Can we not trust that God is at work doing the preparatory work that he's always been at work doing in the lives of his people? Preparing the way for them to believe, ordering their lives so that they might understand more of their sin sickness, more, more of our need, more of our need that we cannot resolve ourselves, 
more of the hurt in our lives, more of the unresolved tensions in our lives, that there, we find hope in Jesus. Is it possible that he's already preparing people to meet Jesus? And with that, this passage is also a vital reminder of how we receive Jesus, that it is simply that, it is receiving. As one writer said, it's lifting up empty hands to receive what God gives, which at the same time is humbling and disturbing and yet entirely refreshing because every part of our lives is about not receiving. Every, every part of our lives is about earning, isn't it? What we can accomplish, what we can achieve, how we can make our boss happy with us, how we can make our kids happy with us, how we can make our parents happy with us. Every part of our lives hints that, 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 we, that there's work to be done. And in some ways, there is plenty of work to be done. And yet in this moment, the message is, all who receive, if you're waiting to get your light fixed up to come to Jesus, you're waiting for the wrong thing and you will always be waiting because you will never get fixed up. If you're waiting to confess your sins to Jesus till you have it figured out because you know the truth and the truth hasn't yet set you free in your mind, you will always be waiting to get your life right and you'll never get there. The message of the gospel is all who receive will be saved. All who believe will be received. It's a beautiful hope. And then we get to the last section here that, that everything else has been pointing to and preparing towards. Look at verse 17 with me. Again, we read these with knowing eyes, most of us anyway, if we're familiar with these words, but notice what happens in verse 14. The word that has eternally existed with God the Father, that has always been in his presence, delighting in him, we read these words in verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh. Again, in the first, century, first centuries of the Christian church, the first, the first 300 years or so after Jesus rose from the dead, these words would have been scandalous. Because the educated, the influential would have heard the, the, the idea of the logos and said, it can't become flesh. Because that would corrupt it, because the fleshly world will only corrupt the spiritual world and is only evil. But the message here is that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That the word there dwelt literally means pitched a tent and moved in with us. It's saying that the word became not only with God, but with humanity. The tent there refers to the tabernacle, which in the, which in the generations previously among God's people, it was the tent that God had instructed Moses to build. A giant tent that would be the centerpiece of their worship, but not only the centerpiece of worship and sacrifice. It would be the place where God says, that's going to tell you that I am with you and have not left you. Because by day there will be a pillar of smoke and by night there will be a pillar of fire that will help you see. And as long as that is with you, you know that I am with you. Jesus is saying, I, the eternal word, has come to dwell among you. And not only that, it adds to this at the end of verse 14 that he was full of grace and truth. And if you look, you see those same words at the end of verse 17 as well. Or, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Again, John is using words carefully here. To speak of the grace and truth of God found in, the, in Jesus himself, the, the idea shows up back in Exodus 34 where God appears to Moses because Moses says, Lord, I need to know who you are. I need to see you. I need to behold you. And God says, I can't let you see me, but I can tell you my name, 
which is the most intimate thing God could have done with Moses in that moment. And God begins with these words, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Translated into the first century, grace and truth. You see, the fullness of the Lord as he appeared to Moses, as he walked past Moses and wouldn't let him see him, appeared in Jesus himself, dwelling among us, entering the world that he had made. And yet, notice there's more. Look at verse 16. For, for, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. As if we could even be, need more than just grace. God's favor and his blessing flowing in abundance. Grace upon grace. One grace would have been enough to receive the favor of our creator, to know his delight and his love for us, to know him fully, would have been enough. And yet John says grace upon grace is what we receive from his being present with us. I was reminded this week of one of Rich Mullen's final songs. He was a Christian musician, popular back in the 80s and 90s in particular. One of his last songs, he wrote these words about Jesus. The, 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 the song is titled, Surely God is With Us. And he wrote these words, one of the verses, well, who's that man? Says he's a prophet. Well, I wonder if he's got something up his sleeve. Where's he from? Who's his daddy? There's rumors that he even thinks himself a king of a kingdom of paupers, simpletons, and rogues. The whores all seem to love him and the drunks propose a toast. Beloved, this is grace upon grace because God is with us. You see, what we see in the Gospels is not only that Jesus came to earth born as a baby and grew up as a man, but that he hung out, as, as Mullins describes, with paupers, with simpletons, and with rogues, with many who go unnamed, many who suffered for years and were outcasts in society, men who were seen as sinners, men, men and women who would have been rejected by all. That's where Jesus found himself. That's where Jesus was, even like people like us. You see, because in, in the midst of our weaknesses, Jesus came to be among us, and, and even, even in spite of our strengths, Jesus came to be among us. In the midst of our weaknesses, in the midst of our failings, our doubts, our fears, our uncertainties, our frustrations, the things we do repeatedly over and over again, Jesus came to us in the midst of that. And he came to us in the midst of our intellect, in the midst of our achievements, and in spite of our intellect, in spite of our achievements, in spite of all the good things that we think we could have accomplished. Jesus still came to even people like us to say, I'm with them and they're with me. Beloved, this is who Jesus is, dwelling among us, giving grace upon grace. But notice what else he's doing. You look back again with me at verse 14. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then in 15, John bore witness about him, and he goes on to say, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And then in verse 18, No one has seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. You see, we read of Jesus dwelling, Jesus giving grace upon grace, and Jesus himself revealing God letting us know who God is by showing us himself. You see, the Father is giving himself to us through the Son by letting us know him. Paul writes in Colossians 1 and then again in Colossians 2, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. For us to know our maker, for us to know the creator, 
we need to look no further than Jesus. And in Jesus, we see the fullness of God as a human being like us who lived, died, and rose again for us. Beloved, this is delight. Do you see it? Do you see God's delight in you? Do you see that in, in the moment of creation, he didn't have to create anything, but he chose to out of his goodness and out of his sheer pleasure. And even in the midst of our rebellion and rejection of him and all that he is and all that he would want for us and dream for us, he still came after us, even to the point of entering this world, such as it is, dirt and grime and mess. He entered in this world to be with us. You don't do that out of exasperation. You don't do that out of insecurity. You don't do that out of loneliness or need. You do that out of sheer delight. And God finds delight in his people, in us, because it's what he's made. And he's called it very good. I've told this story before, but it stands out to me um, in this moment especially. Uh, Tom Baudet was a, is a writer whose dad was a part of the greatest generation. He was a Navy, World War II. He was in the Navy. He was serving in World War II. He was an engineer. He got married. He had six kids, and he worked one job the whole day of his life. And Tom seemed to have it in his mind from a young age that he wanted to make his dad's life miserable. His dad hated ketchup, so he put ketchup on everything. His high, school told him, his high school test told him he should be an engineer just like his dad, and so he studied English. The only thing that would make his dad madder than him than being an English major was dropping out. And so he dropped out of college altogether and headed west from Michigan. He ended up in a lumber camp as a, as a lumberjack, cutting down trees, climbing tall trees and cutting them down. And, and, and at one point in his stay there was at a cabin trying to, trying to turn the, the electricity to that cabin back on and electrocuted himself and fell from about 30 feet and nearly died. He was burned over much of his body and it was surprised that he even lived. In fact, the speculation is that when he landed on his back, it actually jump-started his heart again and the fall is actually the thing that saved him, believe it or not. But for some time he was in the hospital and eventually his parents made their way west to find him in the hospital recuperating. And he couldn't say much again. He had burned, was burned over most of his body. But he would look up and he, he could see his dad's, what he thought was his dad's silent judgment as he suffered from his actions. Because Tom was well aware that what he had done and that his decisions had gotten him to the place where he actually, where he, absolutely where he was. And he just looked up and he would see his dad there sitting in the corner, assuming judgment, assuming judgment. Eventually he got better. He got back out of the, he got out of the hospital and got back on his own. But sometime later, he received a, a letter in the mail, and he knew simply by looking at the carefully lettered writing on the, on the envelope that it was from his dad, his dad was an engineer. And he was expecting judgment and condemnation, but this is, these are the words that he wrote. Dear Tom, I watched you in the hospital as wounded as any soldier in battle, and I watched how, how you handled it with such strength and such courage. And I just wanted to tell you how proud I am of you and that I love you and that I hope you take care of yourself. That's the delight of a father, even chasing after a child who's run away from him. Beloved, that's what we have. You see, the father and the son existed eternally, relating together perfectly, beautifully, and created something that was called very good. We messed it up, we spoiled it, and the father and son continued to pursue and come after us, preparing the way and receiving all who would receive them at work through the spirit. The father and the son delight thoroughly because we know that because the father sent the son and the son willingly entered this world to dwell here with us. 
giving us grace upon grace, revealing the Father, the thing that we need more than anything else, to know our Creator, to know our Maker, and be in relationship with Him. In a rebellion, beloved, God pursues us. He chases us in Jesus. And by His grace, He finds even such as us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that we would know this is who you are. As much as we may see, look at you and think, wow, he's disappointed because I did it again. I pray that we would know your delight, Father, that we would know it internally, that we would know it externally, that it would shape not only how we see you, but how we see other people around us suffering and hurting and lost. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus and by his grace alone, amen.